Open the scriptures with me this evening and uh, turn with me to the book of Romans, to the letter of Romans uh, tonight. We're looking in two directions this evening, backward to the cross and forwards also to the return of Jesus when he will come back and all the glory that will follow because of what he did on the cross. And here Paul in Romans chapter 8 peels back the lid and gives us a little glimpse of the future that awaits us. It's Romans chapter 8 verse 17 to 30. Now if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And then down to verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of God. Let's worship God once more in song, shall we? As we would gaze with Paul toward that future prospect, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Soon and very soon. And uh, thanks again, as Peter has said to the group, for leading us in our singing uh, this evening. Now, I wonder if you've heard of the internet phenomenon known as Second Life. Second Life, anybody? Just put your hand in the air if you've heard of Second Life few of you, many of you don't. Let me explain. Second Life is a, an internet-based virtual world. It's a world where real human beings, see if you can understand this, uh, log on to the internet and live out via computer-generated characters, quite literally, a second life, hence the name. And so they can change practically every aspect of their current existence. 
for instance, you can adopt a different physique. Uh, you could be taller, shorter, uh, beef yourself up a little bit, guys, uh, blonder. You can even be a different sex on Second Life. You can also live in a different place. You can buy property on the program and you can build a house for yourself more impressive than the one you've currently got. And perhaps most controversially, you can also forge other relationships on Second Life. So, for example, you can marry another spouse. Virtual spouse, but a real virtual spouse. Another girlfriend, another boyfriend, different friends, and so on and so forth. It raises all sorts of tricky, complicated questions as to whether Christians should engage with this world. Maybe if you're one of the people that says definitely no, Christians shouldn't get involved. Maybe you saw the story this week that came out about the Catholic Church. Uh, The Catholic Church is apparently encouraging its adherents to evangelize on Second Life. Go in there, start up internet evangelistic cafes or whatever they do and share their faith. Maybe you're one of those people that just would have no qualms about engaging in a world like this. Maybe you've even got a Second Life account, some of you that put your hand up in the air. Just a little warning for you as we begin. See, I think as Christians, we always need to be aware of a cultural phenomenon that's sometimes called escapism. Trying to flee from the present world or present lives. And moving into something different, something better, a second life. You know, Christians don't need to do that. And it's not because we don't recognize at times frustrations in our own experiences. But it is rather because we know that the Bible promises something better. Something beyond, something ahead. You could say a second life, I guess. Not in the here and now, but on the day when Christ returns. And not in some virtual world, but in this real world. And not in a world of our own making. A second life just parallels the real messy world. But in a world of God's making. When God renews our world and renews our bodies into a glorious form. Now, This actually has a technical term. It's called glorification. God renewing, redeeming, restoring our fallen world and our finite bodies. And this is essentially what Paul is discussing in Romans chapter 8. So if you close your Bible, could you open it again to Romans chapter 8 and the section that we've read. Because here Paul gives us essentially a little Bible study in glorification. And he approaches the subject from three very interesting angles that I would like to look with you very briefly, or as briefly as I can be, this evening. And the first of them, the first pair, is suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. That's where Paul begins in verse 17. That we share in his, Jesus' sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And I consider that our present sufferings 
are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So, twice, in two verses, Paul pairs up suffering and glory. It's an unexpected beginning, is it not? Why would Paul make this strange connection as he begins his Bible study? And I think Paul would say to us this evening that the future that God has for us, this glorious second world, so to speak, is not utterly divorced from the here and now, this present world, which he characterizes as a world of sufferings. Paul's trying to show us that this is not going to be pie-in-the-sky talk. Glorification relates to your earthly life here and now. Yes, even your experience of suffering. Your deepest suffering. Now, Paul relates them in two ways. First of all, he says that these two concepts are inseparable. He says that you cannot have one without the other. And he says that one necessarily leads to the other. Did you notice that in verse 17? He says that we share in Christ's sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. He says that you must travel along the pathway of pain to get to the destination of glory. There is no other way. It reminds me of some friends of ours. They returned recently from a trip to Australia and New Zealand. They had a fabulous time. Uh, Wonderful pictures they showed us. And they said to us, you should definitely go one day. But they gave us this little caveat. They said, you know, we need to warn you that the flight is very long and very arduous. Well, I kind of expected that. It's the other side of the world. And they did it in two stops. They said, it's really long haul. And yet, here's the thing. If you want to get to the glorious sunshine of New Zealand and Australia, there is no other way to do it than to go the long and arduous flight. And Paul says, this is also what we must do. We must suffer before we enter glory. It is, says Paul, the very road that Jesus trod. That's why it says here that we share in his, Jesus, sufferings. Not meaning his sufferings on the cross, so much as the sufferings of his earthly experience, his experience of hunger, his experience of tiredness, his experience of bereavement, and all the things that you and I go through He's been there before us, and he suffered before he entered his glory. It's a wonderful encouragement that Paul gives us. And he also, adds a second encouragement here, he says, remember a second fact, that suffering and glory, while they are, are inseparable, they are also incomparable. The glory vastly outweighs the suffering. I consider, he says in verse 18, That means a measured, considered judgment. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, that tells me something. That tells you something right up front about glorification, which he's about to describe. It must be quite something for Paul to say that. Our sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory. Do you know anything about Paul? He was a man 
who suffered in levels of experience that you and I will never probably suffer. He was imprisoned frequently. Most of his letters were written from prison. He was beaten brutally, at least on five occasions. He was shipwrecked twice. This man was eventually martyred. And yet he says, sufferings, path. They are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians 4.17 that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So that if you took all the sufferings in your life's experience and you put them on the one side of the scale and you took the eternal glory that God has for you in the future, they would not even be worth comparing on the scales. Our suffering would be like a feather against the glory. It's a little bit like when you think of one of these athletes maybe training now for the 2012 Olympic Games. Some of them are getting up 6 a.m. every morning. However they feel, whatever the weather, down to the running track, putting in their laps, training through pain, having frustrations and setbacks, working day after day, suffering after suffering. But one day they get to the Olympic event. They qualify for the final. They cross the line first. They step up to the top of the podium. They receive the gold medal. The anthem is played. The glory is theirs. Now you ask that athlete in that moment, was their suffering worth it? How big does it seem as they're basking in the glory? It's just paled into insignificance. I wonder if that's our perspective. I wonder if we can even imagine that reality. And I wonder if you understand with Paul that suffering is part and parcel of the Christian experience. We are not exempt. You will not be exempt this week like I was not from stumping your finger with a hammer. We still attend Christian funerals, don't we? Even the most godly and loved saints. Because we live in this suffering world before we enter the glory. That's the first thing Paul talks about, suffering and glory. But he now moves on to the prospect that's ahead. And this is the second pair, sonship and glory. Sonship and glory. And if suffering spoke of the pathway to glory, how we get there, then sonship speaks of the unique participants in glory. The individuals who are are the focus of this glorification. And they're identified clearly all the way through the passage. Just look with me. Verse 17, they are the children of God. In verse 18, they are the sons of God. In verse 21, they are the children of God. And in verse 23, they are those who are adopted as sons of God. Now, just think about that for a moment. That's very significant, isn't it? Because it means that when Paul refers in verse 17 to we, that we may also share in his glory, that the apostle is not referring to everyone and anyone. The we refers only to the children of God, the sons of God. That is who will share in the glory 
that is to come. Only sons will share in the splendor. And only daughters will delight in the glory of God. And the implication is, contrary to often the perspective that people have, that if you're not in that category, you will not share in that glory. Some people have this idea that at the end of the world, when God wraps things up, he's perhaps a rather senile God, and he'll just wave everyone in to the heavenly party. It's not so. And so I ask you this evening, with some level of urgency, are you a son or a daughter of God? It's not something you get by your first birth. It is something you get by a second birth, where you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, where his death and all that he achieved becomes, as it were, yours. You're put into a right relationship with God. His Holy Spirit comes within you, and it is a deposit that guarantees you are an adopted child of God. I wonder if you've got that assurance this evening, or whether you're just kind of on a whim and a prayer. Now, I hope that that's not the case tonight. I hope you are a child or a son of God or that you make that step tonight. But I want you to see what Paul now points out. What is the glory that actually waits before us? I mean, just think about this reality for just a few moments. This is something worth chewing over this week. In your quiet times, this little verse that Paul says that we will, if we share in his sufferings, Also share in his glory. In a day to come, there is a sense in which you and I, if we are sons of God, will share in Jesus' glory. That is a remarkable, stunning truth. Now, if you say, wow, but how? (laughs) In what sense? Then Paul lifts the lid just a little bit on what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has conceived. And he says that we will share in Jesus' glory in at least two ways. So here's the first one. He says, there will be public recognition throughout all creation of our adoption as sons and daughters. When Jesus returns, we will be universally recognized as the children of God and thereby enjoy the status of actually being called the brother of Jesus Christ. Now, I know what you might be thinking, some of you. Didn't Peter preach last week on adoption? And did not he say, did not the Bible say, that even today, a person who trusts in Jesus is a child of God? Not next week, now. Not when Jesus returns today. Well, you did hear that right. That is the case. And while the fact of your adoption is incontrovertible, however, it is incomplete. And you see, what remains is not so much for God to recognize you as his child, or for you to recognize it. What remains is for all creation to recognize that fact. That you are who you claimed to be, a child of God. Because, let's face it, the world does not see us in this way. You know, an average Edinburgh citizen who is driving behind you and sees one of those fish stickers on the back of your car doesn't start driving more politely because they feel that you're in league with the Most High. 
And there was no special permits outside the church this evening, I didn't notice, for Charlotte Chapel members to get privileged parking spaces. See, people today don't believe a word of it when we claim that we are the children of God. But Paul says one day it will be made manifest. He actually says in verse 18, there will be a day coming when the sons of God will be revealed. And what is concealed today to the world will be disclosed. There will be no doubt, no question that you are a child of God, if that is what you are. We can be clear to the church as well, because as best as we can try and figure it out, none of us knows. In leadership, as people interview folks for membership, you examine people by the Bible, but only on that last day will God reveal who all the children of God are and are not. And God will say, that's my child. That's my daughter. That's my son. And in that way we will share in Jesus' glory. Now notice a second wonderful thing in relation to this, I think. He also speaks about physical transformation of our bodily redemption. I mean, how will the world actually know that this is what we are? Well, one little clue, or big clue, will be what Paul says in verse 23. That we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, and here is a mark of this, the redemption of our bodies. So that part and parcel of our being revealed as the children of God will be the renewal or the redemption of our physical bodies. Now, some of you, no doubt some of you here don't like your body shape, if I can put it like that. You might be quite glad about this doctrine tonight. Uh, it's probably one of the lures of second life. You know, if you're small, you can grow taller, all that kind of stuff. More hair, less hair, whatever. But, you know, this is not like we need new bodies for that reason. This isn't just cosmetic, so that you and I feel a little bit better about ourselves. No, Paul says that our bodies require redemption. Now, redemption means, it means to set Something free from slavery, from captivity, by virtue of a price that is paid. And Paul says, or he implies, that our bodies are in some way enslaved. Now, the Bible fills this out elsewhere. What he's talking about, that we are enslaved to an inevitable decay and deterioration and ultimately to death itself. Because we have sinned. Right back to Adam in Genesis 3, this is part of God's judgment on the human race as a whole. However, if we're going to come into a relationship with God, if we're going to be adopted as his sons of an eternal God and an infinite God, then surely we're going to need some new bodies, aren't we? If we're going to live forever in a relationship with this God, if we are going to praise the glory of this God in the presence of this God and not just be obliterated by His glory. And so part of the promise to the children of God is new bodies. Now, beyond a few verses in the New Testament, we don't know exactly what these spiritual bodies will be like. Rodney and our pastoral team, sorry to embarrass you, Rodney, he, I couldn't resist this, he said this week that he hopes 
that when Jesus returns and we get a new body, that his will have three arms and hands because he's a bit of a handyman in the workshop and he could do more, you know, with three things. I don't wish for that. Uh, We don't know that sort of thing. But seriously, here's what we do know. And this is wonderful news. There are many people that we know, and it may be your experience someday soon or some point in this life, and they are going through some debilitating physical condition. Many of you will know people like that. Care for people like that. Pray for people like that. And perhaps eventually, or maybe recently, stand at the graveside of someone like that. And isn't it an amazing assurance that one day, God's going to heal that broken body. He's going to transform it. He's going to renew it. He's going to get rid of that ailment that plagues you. Not in some other body, but in your body. As he transforms it and renews it by the power of the coming Lord Jesus Christ. It's an amazing, amazing promise. Now, this leads to a third theme that Paul touches on very briefly here. And that is that we will not be the only ones who will enjoy this renewal. Because he also talks about creation and glory as we finish. I wonder how many of you watched the film, documentary, An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore. Arguing that in some way human beings are responsible. You may disagree in some of the details, but he argues that we are responsible in some way for the environmental crisis. Well, that's a funny thing, you know, because long before Al Gore, the Apostle Paul was onto something here in this passage. And he says that all creation, not just planet Earth, but the whole universe, is subjected in the present to frustration and decay. He says in verse 20 that the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. And if you know the Bible at all, you will understand that there's a great sense in which man is responsible for this. It was Adam who sinned back in Genesis 3. This was part of his judgment. That creation was affected to frustration, that is, being unable to fulfill its purpose, and to decay, meaning that it would forever have a proneness to degenerate and to die. Have you ever thought about the fact that the seasons themselves indicate this truth? The fact that you have every year spring, followed by the full bloom of summer, harvest in the autumn, but try as it might, Always, always, winter comes and nature dies. All over again, it is frustrated in its purpose. And at one level, we're responsible. And Paul is aware of that, of course. He's a student of Scripture. But interestingly, notice what he stresses here. Who is Paul thinking about when he says here, the one who subjected it? doesn't tell us specifically who it is. Who is he talking about? Here. Now, it doesn't seem that it's man. And it doesn't seem that it's Satan. And the reason I say that is because this same one, he goes on to add, will liberate creation. And none of us are going to do that, and Satan's not going to do that, so this must be God. 
So God subjected it, but God will liberate it in the future. And this will happen, verse 19, when the sons of God are revealed. So when we are manifest to be the children of God in our renewed bodies, then at that point, the whole of creation will be liberated to fulfill its potential. And this is why Paul says that the creation waits in eager expectation for us to be revealed. Literally, he says that nature stands on tiptoe to see this manifestation. I was at a wedding the other week and we were all turning and straining and looking through you know, gaps just to see the bride coming down the aisle. Creation is doing that and it's looking for you and for me. Now, let me just say briefly something here about two extremes because I can't ignore the whole issue of the environmental debate that is such a hot topic today. Let me just suggest to you for further thought that this guards us against two extremes on this. And the first is environmental apathy. You know, the who cares camp. Sort of, you've heard it, environment's left wing stuff. It's non-Christian interest. I'm a spiritual person. I'm I'm, uh, spiritually focused, not physically focused. I'm heaven bound, not earth bound. And so I can just do what I like with the environment, frankly. Well, I think Paul would probably say that that attitude needs to be rebuked. Because this text tells me that whatever any human being's opinion of the environment, God's ultimate desire for creation is not to frustrate it or decay it or destroy it, but for it to fulfill its potential. Now, can we look God in the eye and say to God, you care, we don't. Dare we take the canvas that God will use one day to renew and recreate the world and just destroy it. Sadly, unbelievers very often are doing a much better job of stewarding God's world than Christians. However, on the other hand, other extreme This would also prevent us against environmental atheism. By which I mean the idea that human beings can, with the right resources and the right amount of effort, just solve the world's problems, quite literally save the world. And you know there are people alive today who believe that. They don't have God in their worldview, and in these secular parts of the environmental movement, they believe, some of them, this fallacy. And so it's a warning that we can never be the ultimate saviour. God subjects the world. God will one day liberate it at the end of time. Now that's plenty of food for thought for you for later on. Paul's main point here, I think, is that this is all God's work. God's work. He brings us through suffering to glory. He makes us sons. He renews our bodies. He will renew the whole of creation. God is at work. In all things, Paul says in verse 28, God works for the good of those that love Him. And so, that leaves us with a little question as we finish. Maybe you say to yourself, well, you know, if God is at work in all this, what does that leave for us? Is there anything for us to do? Maybe we should just sit around and play computer games until God, Christ, arrives. And Paul says no to that. He says we should be very actively 
responding to this truth. And what he says, the main application point of this passage, is that our response should be hope. It comes in verse 24 and verse 25. And this is not the kind of hope that the world often talks about, or even we do. You know, I'm hoping I'll get a parking space tonight, and we're not sure. This is certain hope. In verse 29 that we just read briefly together, did you notice that Paul spoke of glorification there in the past tense? Has Paul forgotten his future in past tenses? Glorification is going to happen in the future. No, Paul understands this. This is an emphatic way of double underlining and saying, this will happen and I am so sure of it that I'll refer to it as if it's already done, already achieved. And so, brothers and sisters, let us not quiver as we hope in Christ. Let's not say, maybe, perhaps, but yes and amen in Christ. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And as we confidently wait, let us do so, grasping also the tension that Paul describes. Let our hope be, this is interesting to ponder this, let it be patient and eager. Patient and eager. In verse 25, when you are disheartened, brother or sister, when you are disheartened and weary of this life and frustrated that God's return is not coming sooner, remember this, we wait for it patiently. Paul would exhort you. And when at other times life is so comfortable that you would rather spend eternity here in the now, then listen to Paul in verse 23 as he prods you, we wait Eagerly, patiently and eagerly. What would be this, this church? What would be a church that holds these two things together? Patiently, eagerly and certainly hoping for all that God has promised in his word. I heard a story of a pastor who took up a post in a new church some years ago. And when he arrived, there was no uh, banner on the front of the church. And the deacon said to him, do you want us to put up you know, First Baptist Church or whatever the name was. He said, listen, don't do that. Just write in huge big letters on the wall of the church, hope in God. Don't want you to write, hope in God. They did that for about five years. They eventually put the right signs up. That was 20 years ago. And I heard him tell the story that sometimes when they go out and they visit in the community and they explain to them what church they're from, they're a bit confused to begin with. And then they say, hey, you're the hope in God church, aren't you? You're the hope in God people. Are we? Are we? Let's pray.